Hi, I'm Steve Barsh, managing partner of Dream Adventures, and welcome to Dream It Live. Streaming to you again today from Philadelphia. On today's show, I'd like to welcome Steve Case, who's joining us. I think uh, probably everybody in the new world knows you. But a quick background, Steve is chairman and CEO of Revolution, a great investment firm based out of the D.C. area. They span seed, venture, and growth stages. He was co-founder of this little internet startup called America Online that kind of started the whole thing off, AOL. On today's show, we're going to talk to Steve with COVID-19 in mind. We're going to talk about a few different topics. What are the emerging opportunities because of COVID-19? And we'll talk about that. And maybe what are some business or business areas that are going to really struggle in sunset? I think we know some of them, but I think we'll cover a couple of more. How could this, all of what we're all going through, how can it affect the future of work and where it takes place. We're gonna hit upon that and how new entrepreneurial ecosystems may blossom and how venture paradigms may shift because of all of this, which would be kind of unexpected from two or three months ago. And then finally, we'll talk about what can startups do to survive and thrive during these challenging times. Let's dive in. Steve, welcome to Dream It Live. How are you today? Great, great to be with you, Steve. Doing well. Great, great to have you. Where, where are you today, by the way, in the world? I, I, I'm in DC. rural Virginia. We have a, a kind of a farm about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., which is where Revolution's headquartered. So my wife and I have been sheltering here for most of the past uh, couple of months, which is a pretty good place to be because you can walk around. What's not so good is the right. connectivity isn't great. So we have really lousy broadband here. So sometimes oh, no. we lose connections. Hopefully we won't uh, today. But it is amazing. You mentioned the intro, the kind of history with AOL. We started 1985, so it was 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. Only 3% of people were connected. They're only connected one hour a week. And so now a world where everybody's connected and essentially the world is operating online uh, while we're all working from home, or many of us are working from home, it is amazing how how the transformation has happened over the last several decades and how it's really kicked in, uh, obviously, in the last couple of months. Yeah, and it, even to be able to do things like we're doing now, or you watch a CNN broadcast and everyone's remote and it's all going over broadband, it's, it's amazing. I wanted to hit, I know in your background and bio, I wanted to hit a little bit more things that I missed. I mean, if I listed your whole bio, the whole show would take your bio. Is there Are there things, a couple things, like you mentioned AOL. I just wanted for the, the audience, our primary audience are startups. And I think what's interesting is so many startups think, I've been working on this for six months and, and it really hasn't taken off yet. I mean, what's taking so long? AOL, if I remember correctly, that was not an overnight success. How long were you at that till you felt comfortable like, hey, this is a winner? It was a long haul. It was really kind of a 10-year in the making overnight success. Overnight success. When we started, as I mentioned, in 1985. Nobody really knew about or cared about getting online. Uh, it was really hard to raise venture capital. Uh, we like, raised a million dollars in the first year. Mm. In the seven years before we went public in 1992 as the first internet company to go public, over those seven years, we raised $10 million in total. Uh, wow. And even the IPO, we raised $10 million in the IPO. The value of the company was $70 million. That was seven years after we got started. So, of course, now everybody understands the, the importance of the Internet. Everybody's online, classes are online, works online, everything's online. But in the, in the 80s and for a good part of the 90s, it was still viewed as sort of a fringy idea. Maybe some computer hobbyists would see the benefit of getting online, right. but most normal average people wouldn't. Uh, and it, it took us a while. A part of our focus at AOL is how do you make it more, easier to use, more useful, more fun, more affordable? How do you create a, a mass market? How do you get America online? And obviously, eventually that happened. But it, it took a decade before most people paid attention. Well, no, it's interesting. Still on your background, too. I want to start to talk about revolution. As we get into that just for a moment, for Revolution, again, how long ago did you start that for Revolution Ventures? And let's we'll just uh, let's go right into our first topic. So Revolution, when, where, and what? Where, give us the well, background. Well, it was really, yeah, so it, it will start in 85. Uh, we merged with Time Warner in the year 2000 as part of mm -hmm. that deal. I stepped aside as CEO, so started thinking about what I was going to do next and mm -hmm. started making some investments in some companies, formalized that 15 years ago, it was 2005, by mm -hmm. creating Revolution. But for the first five or six years, it really was more of a family office. The investments we made, companies like Zipcar, one of the first kind of sharing economy companies, and mm -hmm. Susa Resorts and, and others really were my capital. Uh, it was only probably nine years ago now that we decided to turn it into much more of a institutional platform, an investment mm -hmm. platform. Uh, we, we've now raised two growth stage funds, about a billion dollars there. Mm -hmm two venture stage funds, over $400 million, and then two seed funds, uh, about $300 million. So it's evolved from 15 years ago, 
I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, kind of what the next act was, started making more personal investments, and it's mm-hmm. scaled now to be a little under $2 billion under management and much more of an of a, of a institutional fund as opposed to what it, what it started at. And then part of the reason I decided to do it was I really believe they're great entrepreneurs who are going to you know, create the you know, future and wanted to build a team to, to help help those companies you know, kind of start and scale. And we did decide to, to basically create these different funds so we can try to work with entrepreneurs wherever they are in that entrepreneurial journey. If it's a really early startup, we will be seed investors that are starting to show a little bit of progress. They need to raise a more of a Series A venture round. We can mm-hmm. help them there. And if they've got some scale and are really trying to go for it and build a significant company, we have a team and, and the funds there to, to invest at the, at the growth stage. I want to break that down and do a little bit more detail because I think it's important for this audience watching now or on a, on a rewatch to understand the verticals you're in, the geographies, because it's set, you know, like, who are you to opine on the future of work and what's going to happen? Just a little bit more detail. So the first of those three funds, the distinct funds as you went to, is the first is the seed fund, right? Rise the rest. So rise the rest. What's the stage geography? Just like 30 seconds in each stage geography and industries that you look at for rise the rest. Well, Rise the Rest, we just started about uh, five years ago, started making investments and formalized the funds just uh, two or three years ago. So it's still mm-hmm. our earliest activity. But we, we recognize that most venture capital goes to a few places. Last year, mm-hmm. 75% of venture capital dollars went to just three states, California, mm-hmm. New York, Massachusetts. So if you're in Silicon Valley or New York City or Boston, you know it's pretty easy to raise capital. If you're in most parts of the country, it's actually pretty hard. And so the Rise the Rest Seed Fund was designed to partner with regional venture funds. Our initial check is, is under a million dollars mm-hmm. uh, as part of some, some larger rounds. The, the regional fund take the lead in setting the terms. The regional fund take the lead in terms of board seats and, and active engagement in the company. Our, mm-hmm. our effort is to be part of that uh, syndicate and then work with these different companies uh, to help scale them. So we've made now 135 investments out of the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund in 70 mm-hmm. plus cities, 30 plus uh, states, alongside 200 plus uh, regional venture uh, funds. So that's really off to a, a great start. It is a place-based strategy. So the Rise of the Rest right. Fund will invest in any place outside of Silicon Valley, outside of New York City, outside of Boston. So really the rest of the country uh, and it's sector agnostic. So we, we invest in a lot of different uh, sectors in partnership with with uh, other venture capitalists. Got it. So a little more. Rev- so that's that's seed stage. Then revolution ventures. So if we look at revolution ventures, stage geography industries, same type so of thing. That, is, just that is more of that Series A kind of sometimes mm-hmm. Series B stage. Usually the initial check is five million, seven million, something like that. You mm-hmm. know, companies typically have scaled to the point where maybe they're a twenty million dollar valuation, uh, something you know, give or take. Uh, and that is, you know, will invest anywhere in the country, but they too have a bias looking outside of Silicon Valley because there's just so much capital there. Right. And looking other parts of the of the of the country, some of the investments we've made uh, have been in the Washington D.C. area where we're we're based, but we've made investments all over the country. Recently, we made an investment in in Detroit uh, called Bloomscape, and an investment in Milwaukee called uh, Bright Sellers. We invested in uh, Chicago, a company called you know Paro in D.C., a company called Framebridge. So. Uh, interesting uh, 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 entrepreneurs building interesting disruptive businesses, challenging the status quo, uh, and e-commerce is part of it. Marketplaces are, are a part of it. So there's certain sector uh, focus, but they've been open to investing in a variety of entrepreneurs at that kind of Series A venture stage. Got it. Last one, revolution growth. Stage, maybe some of the big brands, if just 30 seconds on it, just to give people a feel, and then we'll go into the next topic. It really is when the companies have scaled from kind of that startup to almost like a speed up. They're really accelerating mm-hmm. and they need 20, 30, 40 million dollars of capital, which is typically what we're investing at that uh, uh, stage. Some of the yeah, company one recently actually just went public uh, a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago called uh, DraftKings. Uh, oh, we've sure. also invested in other sports tech companies. Uh, Sport Radar is, is one, some mobile gaming companies like Scopely, some uh, uh, restaurant concepts, Sweet Green. Uh-huh. Uh, and Kava, we also invest in Revolution Foods, which works with uh, you know, school lunches and and, and a company in Chicago, uh, Tempest, that's doing some really interesting things around big data, uh, machine learning, and oncology, cancer, trying to be more specific in terms of the, uh, the the diagnosis. We've done some things in the office kind of real estate space, company called uh-huh. 
convened digital mental sure. health, a company called Talkspace that's providing mental health, which obviously becoming an increasingly important problem in society, even more so during this, this crisis. People can't have in-person physical appointments, so they use Talkspace for that. So uh, a variety of different uh, uh, sectors, uh, but it really are the companies that are showing real promise. They usually have tens of millions of revenue already, usually have a pretty clear business model, uh, pretty, pretty intact team. But they really they think they can go for it and they need the capital and some of the expertise we can provide around helping them with strategic partnerships, helping them on some public policy uh, issues, helping them as they kind of take these companies to the, to the next stage. So it's been fun to be an investor at all three stages uh, and try to help entrepreneurs wherever they are in that, in that cycle. Okay, all three stages, geographically extremely diverse, especially staying out of those three big states and um, all industries, right? So very diverse. So let's dive in really into our second topic that starts to get into the meat of it, and I appreciate that background. Talking about new opportunities and what businesses may be most at risk. So let's start on the negative side for a bit, and I just wanted to explore this with you and get your thoughts. What are the verticals, maybe business models and geographies that you think might be at most at risk kind of with a COVID-19 lens. And let me just give you an example, right? Is it, are they verticals like travel and leisure, restaurants and retail? Or do you think certain cities are at risk? Is, is New York City and San Francisco or Louisville, Wichita and Tulsa, which I think Rise of the Rest was trying to go to this year? Are there business models or gig economy, sharing economy? Are they gonna be tougher now? So let's do the negative first and then we're gonna hit the positive. Thoughts? Well, I think that the, the honest answer is it's too early to say, and it kind of depends because we are mm -hmm. investors in all those different sectors you, you mentioned. And mm -hmm. it's really up to the companies to take a step back, recognize the world has changed. Mm -hmm. At some point, we'll get back to some sense of normal, but that new normal may very well be different. And in some sectors, likely will be, be quite different. So trying to reimagine what the businesses look like after we get through the, uh, the crisis. I mentioned uh, Sweet Green is a fast casual you know, sure. company. They've they've had they've, they've, a lot of people ate the food in the restaurants. They've obviously had to close the restaurants, so they've really amped up their focus on on takeout and delivery. And just uh, last week, actually launched an expanded menu, including some some dinner items that they were planning to do next year and decided right. to accelerate and do now, given this particular crisis. So rather than just focus on the negatives of the crisis. They said, sure. what are the, some new things we can do that can expand our, our, our model, expand our appeal? And when we come out of this crisis, we'll be an even uh, stronger company. Uh, Clear, for example, is a company focused on airport security. Well, people right. aren't really flying. I think the current data is over 90% of the flights are down. Maybe it's even 95%. They're looking at some other opportunities to use some of their biometric technology and other things to, to move into other sectors possibly even trying to figure out how to do some of these health screenings. So that's a right. case of taking a step back and saying, how do we pivot and look at, right. at, uh, at different uh, ways of, of, of doing things? I mentioned Sport Radar. Uh, or, I mean, the DraftKings recently went public. That was sort of interesting because most people thought the public markets were closed and the IPOs right. weren't really possible. Uh, and a company going public that's focused on sports and partners with the major leagues uh, and and as those leagues aren't playing, it's, it was sort of counterintuitive, but they were able to build the momentum and tell the story. And now they're very well positioned and very well capitalized when sports return, uh, their growth has the opportunity to uh, to accelerate. So, of course, there are, there are certain sectors that are going to be uh, hit harder. You mentioned uh, some of them. Uh, there will mm -hmm. also be new opportunities that, that may have been slowly building. And you've seen this certainly with work from home. You've seen this with distance right. learning. You've seen this with telehealth. They've really accelerated. The you know the phrase you hear a lot now is is the level of uh, momentum in in the last two months has been greater than it had been in the previous two years. So there's some right. things that are certainly accelerating, and those are great opportunities to be pursuing. But even the ones that are challenged, if they entrepreneurs bring that fresh perspective, uh, they can come out of this crisis uh, even stronger than they entered it. Right. No. Okay. I agree. And I was just thinking on the, it's so funny because our daughter earlier today was like, can we go to Sweet Greens and get from Sweet Green tomorrow night? I just read Chipotle. Like they're, they're booming in this economy, right? They're just, you know, it's, it's amazing. So some fast casual, I guess, is doing really well. So let's talk more on the, where the opportunities are, right? So 
if you think about all of this, and I think it's interesting because I, I, you know, as entrepreneurs, it's almost like our duty and job. Like, how do we, how do we come out of this? What are the new ideas? So, are there new opportunities that you think this is all causing? Whether that's in certain verticals, certain geographies, which I promise we're going to drop drop into geographies deeper later as we talk about this. Business models. Are there certain things that are excited across your different funds that you're like, we're looking for things that are taking advantage of this from a new startup perspective and, you know, verticals. That type of thing. Absolutely. No, we, we've now, through the three different uh, funds, have invested in nearly 200 companies across a lot of different uh, different uh, sectors, and mm-hmm. we're still open for business. We're actively looking at uh, new investments uh, and really believe there is going to be opportunity that this crisis creates. Anytime you have a crisis, obviously, there's a terrible health uh, dynamic to this. Now, 80,000 people have, have, have died, a terrible economic I- impact with, uh, I think the last number I saw was 30 million people uh, unemployed. So I don't want to yeah. underestimate the very sure. serious, difficult challenges we're facing. But that also does create opportunity. And that's right. really where entrepreneurs flourish. That I, mean, I saw this as AOL got larger, and particularly after we merged with, with Time Warner. As you know, that merger did not work the way it was intended. Part of the right. reason, part of the problem was as we got larger, and certainly after we became uh, AOL Time Warner, had 90,000 employees, I think it's $40 billion in, in revenue. The tendency was to play defense. Right. What made AOL successful and what makes most startups successful, most entrepreneurs successful, is playing offense, not trying to de-risk, but trying to maximize the opportunity, not focusing on managing the business, but imagining how the business can, can change. So as mm-hmm. a result, these, these it's, it's not surprising that in historically, in times of crisis, that's where some of the big breakthrough companies have been and launched. So we think that will happen really all, all across the economy. I mentioned some of the sectors we're particularly interested in health is you know, one of the most important aspects of our lives, as we know. That's why we have this crisis right now. Uh, we spend about a sixth of the whole economy is, is health. But the reality is, despite some efforts to, to change, it's still relatively inconvenient, uh, relatively unaffordable, uh, right. relatively inaccessible, and often has relatively poor outcomes. Clearly, there's an opportunity for fresh thinking, not just technology, fresh thinking about you know, ways to offer different uh, products and services. That clearly has been accelerated. I mentioned one example, a talk space in the digital mm-hmm. mental health area. There, there, there are many other uh, examples. So that's just one of many sectors that is kind of up for grabs. This is sort of a, a kind of a shake the snow globe moment. And, right. and nobody knows exactly how long it will last. Nobody knows exactly how things will settle back in. Uh, but that's uh, the most fertile time for, for entrepreneurs. Now, that said, it will be more difficult uh, for entrepreneurs to raise capital in this environment. There are many folks who have pulled back, so we need to focus on our current portfolio and manage right. that before we're willing to make uh, make uh, new investments. So it's going to be more difficult uh, to raise capital, particularly, in, as you said, we'll get to this in some of the regions that we think of right. as, as rise the rest. So there, there'll be more challenges, but the companies that can break through that, imagine that new possibility, come up with a product or service that can really usher in a new and better way for people, assemble the right uh, team, put together the right partnerships and raise the capital to give it a, a shot. There are going to be some amazing companies that come out of this crisis. Right. So we, we talked about what are some of the negatives? What are some of the models that will be challenged? We talk about a little bit, what are some of the opportunities, verticals, or geographies, or business models? Let's say I'm a startup, I'm a CEO in your current portfolio, or one of the CEOs listening and watching today, and I'm running my company. What advice would you give them? I'm running my business. Where should I be focusing my time, and what distractions should I be tuning out? Because there's a lot of distractions, and it's a little bit like focus. What, what are you saying that you need to say to entrepreneurs, this is... Focus on this. Stop messing around with this right now. Well, we've been having weekly or biweekly, depending on the, what the, the topics calls with our, with, our, with our companies, partly to advise them on what's happening with this health crisis. We have a great team at Revolution. Part of our focus has been on policy, partnering with government, understanding what changes in regulatory policy might impact either positively or negative uh, different sectors, different different businesses. One one person, particularly Ron Klein, actually left mm-hmm. us for a few months uh, six seven years ago to become President Obama's uh, Ebola czar. He's he's mm-hmm. now back with us, and so he's quite expert in helping navigate through this this COVID crisis. So initially, two months ago, the focus was just trying to make sure everybody understood 
the nature of the crisis and the seriousness of the crisis. And mm-hmm. that led to a series of actions, most in case kind of closing down something they're doing, having their employees obviously work from, from home. It de- varied depending on the city. It varied depending on the sector. It varied depending on the size of the company. But that was really the you know the focus. And there continues to be a lot of focus in managing through that uh, situation. But now it's starting to shift a little bit into more in the reopening process, which actually likely will be more difficult than the closing mm-hmm. process. It was right. relatively easy, even though it seemed hard at the time to figure out ways to kind of pivot and wind some things down and move people to remote work, figuring out when and how to bring them uh, back on stream in a way that is safe for your team members, safe for your right. customers, et cetera, is going to be a, a big focus. But through that all, you need to make sure you're devoting enough time to not just managing through the crisis, but imagining, as I said before, right. how the world might change and how your company and your strategy needs to change to, to reflect that new reality. Nobody knows exactly what that new normal will look like, but it's going to be in many parts of our, our society, in many sectors of our economy, it's going to be different. And the companies that are using some of their time, I, granted, there's a lot of focus just on triage, managing the, the crises of the moment. I understand that. But taking some uh, time to step back and just say, OK, based on this and some plausible scenario in terms of when and how things uh, kind of return to some sense of, of normal, how might the world be different? How might our sector of, of be different? How should our company, our product, our service uh, be different? So you got to make sure you're devoting at least some of your time to that, not just playing uh, defense, managing the, the crises of the day, even though I know there are many that, that sure. you have to manage, and often it is more difficult to manage it when you're dealing with with the, uh, a remote workforce. Just two quick points. It almost could be a Pareto principle, right? 80-20. 80% is on the current crisis. 20% is don't forget there's a future after this. Just a quick note, you're, you're in great company. No surprise. Last week, we had on Joel Peterson, Joel's chairman of JetBlue. And he has a new book, Entrepreneurial Leadership. He's like, entrepreneurial leaders will focus on the crisis, but then think about like, I have to remember, I have a business to run after this. And you can't forget about that. He said the same exact thing last week. So it's interesting. Let's move into the next topic. We're talking about books. We're talking about, I want to go to your book. So you wrote a book years ago, right? The Third Wave. And I wanted to talk about the intersection of what we're going through today with your book, The Third Wave, right? The Entrepreneurial's Vision of the Future. And I just want to do a quick recap on um, that book, right? So the first wave was building the internet and awareness. Did that, done, done and did that, right? That was AOL, you did that personally. That was kind of cool. Second wave, building uh, apps and services on top of that. The Facebook's the world and Google's on top of that. Third wave, integrating, I know you know it, but just for the audience, integrating seamless and pervasive ways into every aspect of our lives, which is where we are today. And thank God, like in a crisis like this, it's great that all this technology is pervasive and helpful, but I wanted to go deeper into that. What do you think, you know, you had written in that book that the entrepreneurs are going to vastly transform real world sectors, healthcare, education, transportation. What do you think is the intersection with what's going to happen in entrepreneurships today and post, you know, COVID and post COVID with that third wave kind of thinking? And Well, they did a great job of, of summarizing uh, the kind of the core tenets of the, of the book. Uh, but part of it also was recognized, the reason I wrote the book is I recognized the playbook, the dynamics that drove the first wave of the internet, obviously, I say about AOL, but there are many, many companies that helped stand up the internet and build the servers and build the connectivity and the modems and the computers, et cetera, et cetera, that made it all uh, possible. Uh, The principles that basically made that possible were different than the principles, the playbook and the second wave. And I think this third wave, when the internet kind of meets the real world, the playbook will be more like the first wave. And some of the key dynamics that were so critical in that first wave, one mm-hmm. was partnership. You know, you couldn't do it on your own. We all had over right. 300 partnerships with a whole variety of companies of a variety of different sectors. We all had to work together to make that happen. In the second wave, companies like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, they didn't really need partnerships. They had a, a great idea, a great app that spread virally, and suddenly they were you know, big successes and had significant uh, uh, reach in the third way. We talked about some of this earlier. Whether mm-hmm. it be healthcare or food, or food and agriculture or education, these are systems level changes. It's not just right. about the software. It's not just about what any one company does. It requires that partnership focus. Another big dynamic uh, in those early days was policy. Even when we started mm-hmm. AOL in 1985, believe it or not, it was still illegal, illegal for consumers or businesses to connect to the internet. 
At the time, oh, the internet, which had been funded by the government, by DARPA, yep, DARPA. was restricted mm -hmm. to educational institutions and government uh, agencies. So right. companies like uh, AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy yep. and many others essentially had to create their own separate online world because they yep. couldn't connect them to the internet. So we right. had to focus on policy. How do you commercialize mm -hmm. the internet? How do you open the doors? What should the rules of the road, tax and other kinds of things be around uh, e-commerce? There was a whole host of policy issues critical in the first wave. The first wave couldn't have happened without those policy changes. Again, right. not very critical in the second wave. will become very critical again in the third wave, given the nature of how important these sectors, healthcare, transportation, food, smart cities, things like that are. And the final principle, I call these in the book, the three, the three Ps, partnership mm -hmm. policy. The third is perseverance. As mm -hmm. we said at the very beginning, it was a 10-year journey before we finally kind of broke through. Uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't have the kind of overnight success that a Facebook or, or many other second wave companies did. In this third wave, it's going to take a while. It's going to be a slog. You're not going to have uh, easy access to partnerships. It's going to take a while to, to, to change some of the, the policies. But it goes back to the core topic here. This crisis does create some dynamics that likely accelerate some of those right. dynamics. In the telehealth, for example, there have been restrictions around state, each state does their own you know, policies. Some of those are being relaxed to make this possible. Similarly, in terms of learning, there have been certain rules of the road that were put in place. Some of those have been relaxed. The question is, do those stick? Do some of the temporary changes become permanent changes, which can usher in an acceleration of these third wave businesses? So I think it's a great opportunity. Again, it's, it's going to require a, a different mindset, focusing more on partners, understanding the role of policy, being willing to take the long view, be patient, you know, and persevere. Uh, but the entrepreneurs that do that, I think, are going to build some of the the great iconic companies of the next ten or twenty years as this third wave really starts to accelerate. Right, and I, I agree with what you're saying, and I would even say it's the entrepreneurs that realize those second order effects. Right, instead of, you know, for years I was pushing my telehealth or I was pushing my distance learning. Now it's not a push; it's a pull. Right, we had a second dream at company today, a second one received. So we do a lot of health tech, urban tech, and secure tech companies. A second health tech company today received an FDA clearance because of emergency youth author, uh, emergency use authorization. Right. That would have been unheard of. They would normally go through regulatory path, but we have dream companies who are just getting pulled forward. They're not pushing anymore. Same thing in distance learning and education, or like you talked about in telehealth, right? Was it about a month or two ago, sometime in the last four to eight weeks, where doctors had state licensures? Well, I can't, I'm a Florida doctor. I can't talk to a person, patient who's in Virginia. Oh, never mind. Now all good, right? So it's really interesting how COVID. To me, I'm a big fan of the expression nitmoy, and I talked about it last week, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Okay, bad things are happening. We got to move fast. We don't have a choice. So suddenly things start coming down. So when you talk about partnerships and all that, it's kind of interesting because things are accelerating. And I think it's interesting, like you talk, healthcare, education, food, some of those core areas that you talk about in the third wave, many of them will get pulled. And I think it's the entrepreneurs that recognize that to say, wow, now is an opportunity. I mean, it's going to pull me no forward. Question. No yeah, question. Yeah. And, and again, focusing specifically on COVID, it's a perfect example of the role of policy, the role of regulation. The agencies we have set up, the FDA and others, are really designed to protect people, protect mm -hmm. people from bad things happening. And of course, right. we don't want drugs to be offered that are going to kill us or medical devices that are going to hurt us. We want things to be safe and that actually work, that have efficacy. So there is a logic why there are regulations in place uh, in, in that sector. At the same time, that does result in things taking longer and costing more to, to, to develop. When we have a crisis like this, the reason people are more optimistic now than they might have been a couple of months ago about a vaccine for, for COVID is normally it takes five plus years to develop a vaccine, but there's a lot of focus on it, a lot of investment in the, in the companies that are, that are pursuing this, and a fast tracking of the uh, kind of trial and approval process that creates more momentum and more of that sense of possibility that maybe there is a possibility of getting in the next six or 12 months, something that normally would take three, five, seven years. So you got to understand it's part of the, this challenge in the third wave. The, the regulators aren't crazy. We as a society do want to have certain rules of the road. We do want to have certain you know, protections. And that's part of what the regulations are designed to do. But there are moments like now where the focus can't be on keeping bad things from happening. It has to be on unleashing good things to happen. Uh, and that creates opportunity in the sectors 
that are get get that that opening that that unleashing. And there, as you mentioned, Absolutely. there are many sectors now that that will get more energy, more investment, more momentum, and and be able to accelerate their pursuit of mainstream acceptance because of this this crisis. Yep. Okay, cool. Let's move on to our next topic. That was great. Fourth topic, the future of work. So I want to put a little definition around that. Future of work, there's, there's, as you mentioned, massive unemployment, like 30 million people. The numbers are just staggering. I was last week, wait, was that last week's unemployment number? Or is that the total? It's like these numbers are huge. Most people are work from home. I'm work from home. You're work from home. Most people are. Many have left big cities. I know people on Dreamit teams. We have Dreamit team members that live in New York City, but now they're in Philly or they're in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They're like, I'm out of here. I, I can't stay in New York right now. They've gone rural. They've gone rural. They've gone to farms or elsewhere. So I want to talk about the future work. And let me give you a couple things, conversation starters, maybe. First, would you expect to see some level of redistribution of labor, meaning people are going to move from retail and restaurants to warehouses, cloud kitchens, and delivery? There's a lot of people that are displaced jobs. Is that going to shift? Do you think it's going to accelerate some trends that were already happening? I think that's likely. But first of all, in terms of the we, we, many of us uh, so-called knowledge workers kind of take mm-hmm. for granted that everybody's working from home, about 70 percent of jobs cannot be done at home. It's just the nature right. of that it includes some of the things that, that, that you mentioned, certainly healthcare, other sectors are, are, are like that. So part of the challenge is to think about for that 30 percent, what are ways to reimagine what work looks like, re- reimagine what the office is. Maybe there is more of a hybrid between being in the office and being able to work from home or or, or remotely, I think this has been a, a surprising wake-up call to a lot of CEOs, including a lot of big companies that didn't imagine this this work from home could work as well as, as it has. So I think there will be a reassessment there. But we also need to focus on that 70% and make sure that that those jobs are there, the, the new skills that are required for the jobs of the future are, are also built. And there is some migration, as you're suggesting, from mm-hmm. some jobs into other, other jobs because of when it all settles out, uh, there may be more opportunity now here than there is uh, there. At the same time, and there are different theories on this, my own view is that that while work from home has some benefits, there are still benefits to being in an office Absolutely. environment and some kind of hybrid makes sense. While delivery of, of, of food is certainly convenient in this time, it, it works pretty well. There is something about the social experience of being in a restaurant. Absolutely. Similarly, of course, being able to stream movies on Netflix or Hulu or or what have you uh, is is convenient. There is something about being in a theater, which is a more social uh, experience. So human nature tends to change more slowly than we we think, and it's still unclear exactly how this all you know settles out. But it likely will change some of the things we do, but not necessarily in a revolutionary way. Some of the changes might be more evolutionary. Okay, fair enough. I'll give you an example. By the way, a friend of mine, Doug Alexander was on a Goldman Sachs real estate call a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about not redistribution of labor, but working from home and going to the office and CEOs saying, wait, my team is productive and they're not in the office, which is not ideal all the time. But the example was apparently there's a big law firm in New York City that had 10 stories of an office building. And right before this hit, they were about to sign their optional lease for an additional five floors of the office building. And of course, you can imagine what happened. They didn't sign the lease and they're not going to going forward. Why? Because the law firm has realized during all of this, their employees are happier, they're commuting on average two hours less per day, and their billables are up. They're like, wait a second, we're making more money, our expenses are lower. It's just interesting, and like, but will that last? You know, p- human beings are social creatures. They want to be around other people, so what's that balance? And also, but, also, I think it's, yeah. a, it's been a particular challenge for folks who are working, uh, often, you know, both uh, people and a, you know, both of a couple are working. They're, in addition to both doing, trying to do their jobs, they're trying to also be the quasi teacher proctor for their right. kids doing distance learning trying to figure out how to you know kind of manage their everyday kind of kind of life and it does create some challenges so there are some people who have been comfortable working in this environment maybe even prefer working in this environment and would like that to stay stay in place and for some people maybe it will others mm-hmm. are eager to get back to you know, being a, a more normal kind of day and a more normal kind of office uh, environment. I think a lot of people will be in the middle and maybe when it settles out, you know, people will still be in the office, you know, three, four days a week, but one or two sure. days a week, maybe they, they do continue to work in a more remote fashion. It will depend based on a company. It will depend obviously based on the, uh, on the sector, but you know, there clearly will be some changes, how extensive those changes are. It's early to say, but again, this creates entrepreneurial opportunity. One of the companies sure. back convene 
is works with the landlords in terms of shared meeting spaces. So every office doesn't have to have their own meeting spaces and they can manage them for an entire building. And they're looking hard at what is the future of work? How do people kind of move back into this and what opportunities are created you know, by that, that transition? Right. Do you think, to drill into that a little bit more, do you think you'd see a material percentage change? So we're going to start to get more into this kind of rise of the rest things. From big cities, people moving out of the San Francisco's, New York's, Boston's, the world. And, you know, I know a lot of people right now, they went back home. You know, I'm, I'm from Iowa. <laughs> I'm not from Palo Alto. And it's kind of nice to be back home. And oh, by the way, it's so much cheaper. And I love it here. I live in Park City. I know somebody in Park City, Utah. It's gorgeous. And, and I'm getting my work done. And you see a lot of, particularly, these are tech companies, right? So people that can work remotely are like, why am I doing this? Why am I beating myself up? Would you expect to see some level of material change of people moving out of cities to rural, suburban, or home? Uh, yes, I think I've, I've been saying for some time as part of our what we've been working on with the Rise of the Rest, our goal mm -hmm. was to level the playing field so everybody everywhere really had a shot at the American dream and everybody mm -hmm. growing up in every city can be part of it. Even if they don't start a company, they can be part of a, a startup and a, and, a, and a growing company. And the last you know several decades, there's been a massive brain drain where people growing up, as, as you mentioned, in Iowa are going to school in Michigan or, or mm -hmm. other other places. Hey, wait, I, uh, I went to Michigan. Uh, Let's not pick, pick any well, other place no, except Michigan. <laughs> no, Michigan is a great, it's a great <laughs> example. You know, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, it's where Larry yeah. Page went and ended yep. up being a Google founder. What if he had started Google in Ann Arbor? What, what right. kind of impact could, could, could that have? In Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, the best university in terms of robotics, even Uber mm -hmm. and some of these cars are working on their driverless operations in, in Pittsburgh. But most historically, most people who graduated from you know, Carnegie Mellon or you know, the other schools did go to Silicon Valley or Boston right. or New York. There wasn't a lot of startup activity, innovation activity in those uh, cities. So that led to this brain drain. And you know, probably 95% of people uh, living in Silicon Valley are from someplace else. Uh, they're there because that's the land of opportunity, in part because it's a great, creative, uh, disruptive culture, but also because that's where most of the money is. And right. so over time, we really want to create more of an opportunity everywhere. There are people pre-crisis that were starting to think of maybe instead of being in a big city like uh, New York, maybe there I should be in a smaller city. Uh, right. and, or maybe I want to go back to where I grew up, or maybe I want to you know, go back to where I went to, you know, kind of, you know, college or, or there's some, there's some des desire to do that, but they felt like couldn't really make the move because they, they would lose too much in terms of their potential kind of career opportunity or even entrepreneurial opportunity because of this issue of access to capital. You know, my guess is it goes back to this being kind of this shake the snow globe moment. There are right. more, more families now having that conversation. It likely will result in a boomerang of some people returning, but, and it's a big, but, we need yeah. to make sure the capital really is there, that the angel networks that have started to mobilize uh, continue to invest as opposed to because of the crisis pull back, that some of the regional venture funds that have started can continue to scale. Some of the new ones that are being created can get the initial funding they need and also encourage the coastal investors to at least occasionally get on planes to visit entrepreneurs in the middle of the country and back those entrepreneurs in, in the middle of the country. So right. there, there's some risk that this crisis might slow the capital flows more going to other people in other places and slow this rise the rest momentum. I, I'm concerned about, about that. We want to do everything we can to make sure those capital flows continue to accelerate because we do believe the talent flows are poised to accelerate, but you got to match the capital and the talent together. Do you expect, and I'll come back to capital in a minute, would you expect to see more startups possibly in these, I'll call them secondary cities. It's not the right, you know, and I live in one, I'd have lived in Philadelphia. I think, I know you're close with, I know the folks in Tampa, right? What Bill Gates and Jeff Vinnick are doing in Tampa right. when they're building up. Would you expect more startups because of all of this to start in those areas? It's like, it's a lower cost base. My real estate's less, employees are less, services are less. It's lifestyle. It's like I'm living in Tampa or Park City or, or Chattanooga, Tennessee. Would you expect to see more startups coming from those cities? Yes, and it started, some of that started happening pre-crisis. Even some of the biggest right. companies, Facebook, Google, et cetera, have open offices in Pittsburgh or Ann Arbor or other, other places, right. recognizing that it, they're at risk and trying to have their workforce exclusively in, say, Silicon Valley. They needed to have a more dispersed regional force. Amazon, obviously, got a lot of publicity around their second headquarters you know, search and 
ultimately right. resided in the D.C., northern you know, Virginia area. So that trend had already started to accelerate. As a result, some of those graduates from some of those universities that might have 10 years ago left to go to the coast were more mm-hmm. able to stay. And as a result, you are seeing more startup activity in more of these different uh, cities. The cities need to do more to drive more collaboration, drive more of that sense of possibility, encourage the risk-taking that entrepreneurs you know, do. And there needs to be more more capital, but there definitely is a is a momentum building that should result in these second and third tier cities from a size standpoint. They often have better advantage than first tier cities in terms of a lot of the lifestyle, cultural, even educational uh, kind of benefits. We think there is an opportunity to level that playing field, and it hopefully will accelerate because of this crisis. It's interesting. Last point I just wanted to hit in this is, and you kind of brought this up, large companies adjusting for that remote remote workforce kind of policy, right? You hear what happened with Twitter yesterday, right? Twitter announced everybody can work from home forever. And it was kind of interesting how they said that, but you can come back to the office. But it'll be interesting if companies, they actually literally modify their policies. Like, this is working. You want to work from home? Work yeah, from wherever you want, if you can. There have been some very successful kind of remote companies. WordPress is probably the most uh, uh, visible where they have right. an entirely kind of remote workforce. Uh, most people thought that was kind of weird. Now they're right. realizing it's much more possible. And as the big companies, as you mentioned, Twitter, but there are many others, allow mm-hmm. people to work remotely. Well, if you can work remotely, why would you live in that large city where it is you do have more of a cost of living disadvantage? You do have other challenges you need to deal with. If you can have the job you love and the opportunity you want right. and be someplace else, maybe I should be someplace else. And that also will accelerate the the, the flows of, of capital. And, and I think that will ultimately help these these cities to, to, to rise up. Like I mentioned before, 75% of capital going to three states. I think that will decline. There'll be less going to those three states. They'll still be the winners. You know, Silicon Valley mm-hmm. still will be the leader of the pack for sure by, by quite a distance. But other cities that we visited and invested in, whether it be you know, Columbus or Cincinnati or Madison or Des Moines or Denver or you know you, Atlanta, New Orleans, you could kind of list. We've now visited 45 cities as part of our Rise of the Rest effort. They're all showing momentum in terms of what, what's possible. And there's a sense of excitement about this next wave and creating a stronger startup culture. I do think this crisis can help be a catalyst, a tipping point mm-hmm. for that. But those communities really need to make sure they're embracing their entrepreneurs, particularly at this time of difficulty. The, the capital to help these companies start and scale is, is still there. The partnership locally between the university and the big companies and the mayor's office and the small companies is, is even tighter. This is a moment to seize to really try to do what we can to help the, help the rest rise. That's right. It's great. So I want to just a little deeper, fifth, final topic, right? So these new innovation ecosystems and venture capital. Love to get some of your expectations. Again, you said, you know, the vast majority go to three states. And, you know, you think that there's going to be startup growth, not only in those areas, but other areas as well. Would you expect in this in this last thing to talk about topic, will venture investing shift? So let me give you a couple of thoughts and, and get your reactions. You know, if we're at this for at this, meaning COVID, you know, there's a vaccine, there isn't a vaccine, there's a therapy, there isn't a therapy. If we're at this for one to two years of this, whatever this is, you know, distance, social distancing, all of that, do you think investors are going to invest? Do you think more or less, like if you said, you know, you'll get on a plane. I don't, I don't know the next time if, uh, if an investor is in Menlo Park, are they hopping on a plane to fly to Chicago? Is that going to happen three months from now, six months from now? Do you think they're going to start investing in, you know, these other areas that aren't secondary cities, you think it'll be a catalyst or more or less, I guess, because of all of this, are those investors in the big hubs going to invest more and less in these secondary markets today? Well, they, what was happening before the crisis is there was a growing recognition that a lot of these rising cities were in fact rising. The talent there was was, was pretty impressive. The ability to do at least some things more remotely was starting to become mm-hmm. more and more possible. And importantly, it goes back to what you're asking about the book I wrote, The Third Wave, the yep. domain expertise in many of those sectors with the universities and the key partners in many of these sectors of you know, large Fortune 500 companies are in the middle of the country. And in, in healthcare, for example, um, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota or MD Anderson in Texas or the Cleveland Clinic yep. in Ohio are among some, the very, very, very best in the in the nation, if you're trying to uh, move forward with some innovation, they are people you want to partner with. Some of the largest right. and most powerful healthcare companies, like United Health, is 
is in, in Minnesota. The HCA is in, in Tennessee. So the right. partnerships and the, that you need to form and the expertise you need to leverage is in the middle of the country. And so that's why more venture capitalists were starting to sense maybe they should not just focus on investing in their backyard, but investing more broadly. This crisis, as I said earlier, could be a positive, it could be an accelerant, or it could mm-hmm. lead, as you're suggesting, some to say, well, it's, it's kind of always a little bit of an inconvenience convenience now i'm a little worried about it so i'm going to just right. you know, invest in companies i can drive to or or, or, or bike to or something and they'd be right. less likely to you know get on planes that would hurt the development of these rising cities our hope is that people will realize that's where the opportunity increasingly will be in the third wave also as you know valuations often are lower there because of classic right. supply demand so investors when they do Absolutely. hit it and a company like duo security in ann arbor or exact target mm-hmm. in indianapolis there's now seven or eight multi-billion dollar SaaS companies in Provo, Utah, when people see mm-hmm. that kind of momentum, uh, they say, well, that is a great investment opportunity. I should do more of that. Uh, and I, my hope is that will that flow of capital will accelerate as this third wave really uh, kind of accelerates as well. On, the, on that same note, here's a here's a question and expectation. You know, if you look at DreamIt, we've probably closed rounds. Most of them aren't even announced yet. We've probably closed two or three funding rounds into companies in the last couple of weeks. Most of those started pre- you know, all this craziness. Would you expect going forward that people are going to pitch over Zoom and close over Zoom and never be face-to-face? Do you think deals can be done this way today if I'm in one of those distant cities and, you know, the investors in the Bay Area, it's all over a distance, all over Zoom? I think it's possible. We've actually done some of that in the last uh, couple of months ourselves at, at uh, Revolution. Mm-hmm. But it is easier at the earlier you know, stage, sort of more of the right. seed stage, when your you know, right. initial check is, is lower, usually part of a of a group of, of people that are investing uh, together. It, I think it would be more challenging at the later, for us, Revolution growth you know, stage to, to make a 30 or $40 million investment without actually visiting the company and, and uh, meeting face-to-face with the entrepreneurs. Maybe, maybe it will, that will change, but likely, I think the deals happening right now are the deals where uh, something was already in process before, right. uh, mm-hmm. and there's you know there's now a, kind of a negotiation. Maybe some of the terms have, have, have changed. Maybe the valuation three months ago was viewed as too high, and now it's a little bit lower, and so a deal can get, get done. It's a little harder to, to to surface those new deals, particularly at the at the later stage in an entirely remote environment. I'm sure it'll happen, and it, it, yep. it probably will accelerate in the in the coming months because we're in this for. For a while, but that side of things, I, I would I would expect to be a little less of a remote only uh, you know world than you see on the on the venture and, and certainly seed side. It's interesting. I heard a VC talk about on a discussion panel the other day. They said, you know, I wanted to really meet this early stage company. It was interesting, and we're both in the Bay Area. And I said, could you meet me at the park? And he pitched me socially distanced walking through the park together. I was like, okay, is that what it's going to come down to? <laughs> that, that, you know, pitch me, but we just can't be in the same room and let's be outside, which is different than pitching over Zoom. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground. Do you have about 10 more minutes to just, we have about 10 questions sure. in queue for you, right. if you don't mind. The yeah, first one, by the way, just that I, I wrote the first question was just for me, just, you know, I just wanted to ask this, something I thought of late last night that I threw and I even put on Twitter. So let me go through, really appreciate your time. Let's go through the questions right now. First question is going to come up. Dustin will probably bring it up, Bob third, and I'll read it in case you can't see it. But the first question says, are there second order opportunities from these possible shifts that are mentioned? Think blue jeans and pickaxes. You know, you use Provo as an example. So if there's a blossoming of more startups in these secondary cities, what are the second order effects? If Chattanooga, if Wichita, there's more and more startups, are there, you know, again, it's like the gold rush, right? There's blue jeans and pickaxes. Second order effects of things you might expect to see happen? Well, the reason it's so important, just from a public policy standpoint, to level this playing field and get startups uh, starting everywhere, is if you look at the data, essentially Mm -hmm. startups create all the jobs in our country. Small Mm -hmm. businesses account for a lot of jobs in aggregate, obviously incredibly important. That's why there's so much focus now on trying to protect them. But as a sector, don't actually add jobs because one restaurant goes out of business and is replaced probably by another restaurant. They probably employ about the same number of people. The biggest right. companies, the Fortune 500 companies, also don't create jobs. Some are growing, obviously, like Amazon. Some, like mm-hmm. GE, are declining. The job creation is happening from the startups. And then there's a spinoff effect that, you know, from the startup jobs that sure. create the jobs in, in, in retail and, and, and restaurants and, 
and home builders and other kinds of things. And we saw that as AOL grew, it wasn't just about the employees we had. It was a ripple effect throughout the community. So absolutely, there'll be ripple effects. A little bit like when right. the interstate system was, was built, suddenly there were a lot of opportunities for motels and fast mm-hmm. food restaurants and other things that were developed. If we can create startups everywhere, back startups everywhere, they're creating jobs everywhere. It's not just about the startup jobs being created, but all kinds of jobs also being created right. in those communities. And I think for entrepreneurs watching and startups watching, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's it's not the obvious thing that's straight down the middle. It's that tangential. Because this is happening, there's this new opportunity, I realize, that's not so obvious that it's kind of interesting. All right, let's go to our next question. Uh, next question says, let me just read this. What cities do you think may see the largest outflow of talent? Any that people are like, that's it. Um, in terms of outflow of talent, it's where there's been significant inflows in the last 20 years. I do believe that uh, cities are important. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it gets a little harder to, to build. Uh, there's some who have obviously done it with entirely remote workforces. But in general, there is something to clustering of people, clustering of talent. Our argument with the rise of the rest is it doesn't just have to be San Francisco and New York. It can be other right. cities all around the country. So I think you'll see a migration. You saw a migration from people in the middle of the country having to go to the coast. I think you'll start seeing that boomerang of migration going to, to different different cities and some of these mm-hmm. you know kind of cities that might have five hundred thousand you know, people now have the opportunity to to uh, to be growing. Okay, interesting. Okay, and go to our next question. We're going through about six more to go. Next question: Do you feel there's more investment opportunity at the seed, venture, or growth stages? So I guess you have three different funds, right? Um, so they're asking around that. Is there more opportunity, seed, venture, growth? You're, you're spanning all three. We, we, we see opportunity at all three stages. There's still a lot of okay. companies getting started, which enable us to invest at the seed level. Some of those companies get to the next level on the venture side, and some a subset of those get to the next level on the growth side. So we actually believe there are a lot of opportunities. Our focus, as I mentioned, because of Rise of the Rest, is not just looking where everybody else seems to be looking in Silicon Valley, but making the effort to look in other places and look for particularly companies in these third wave uh, sectors. But we think the, the next 10 years are going to be terrific years for, for entrepreneurs everywhere across uh, the country and across these, these different sectors. Okay. Let's hit our next question. Next question says, so I'm just looking at a spreadsheet, um, any suggestions on how to pivot? Questions I should be asking or answering. I think you said at one point, you know, companies don't look at it as a, as a negative. It's, it's almost lemons from lemonade. Where's the opportunity? So again, any suggestions on how to pivot questions I should be asking myself or answering? Thoughts? Well, it certainly depends on the sector, depends on the company at stage and and so forth. But I think the starting point is to really spend the time to imagine in whatever you're doing, what it might look like 10 years from now, Mm -hmm. Uh, how the world might change 10 years from now. This was one of the key things we kept trying to do at AOL, just try to imagine kind of way out front what was it likely to look like? And then kind of take a step back and figure out how you get from where you are to where you think it's it's going to go and try to be a little bit in front of that. that you know, the, the Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, people say he was a great right. hockey player. He didn't focus where the puck was. He focused on where the puck was going. You got to focus on where the puck is going. And then like Gretzky, just get there a little bit before somebody else gets there to be able to mm-hmm. capitalize on that, that opportunity. But it starts with a passion about what you're doing and a perspective mm-hmm in terms of how it's going to change and how you can benefit, maybe even drive that change. Okay, great. Let's go to our next question. Um, okay, interesting. Since it will be hard to travel, could the opposite be true? Maybe move closer to venture. So I guess what we were talking about with the venture, you know, tends to focus in you know, three key areas. That's where a lot of the VCs themselves are. You know, I guess, do, do I get closer to go for a walk in the park? Do I move to the Bay Area? And just the opposite of true. Any, any thoughts? Some will, uh, some will. And obviously, okay. that that has been the history of the last you know twenty years, where people felt like that's where they need to go because that's sort of they said the I can't remember who the famous bank robber is. Why do why do they you're on oh, the yeah, bank? Yeah, that's yeah. where the money is. That's right. where the money is. So that's really exactly. So that has been the dynamic. Some people will will choose to do that. I think more will choose mm-hmm. to stay where they are because they sense there's something happening there and they want to be part of that. They want to tap into some of the expertise where they are in terms of some of these third wave uh, sectors. I do think some people will start boomeranging back to these other other places. But obviously it's a you know a lot of people make different different choices. The question is how do you take a step back and what are the macro trends? My hope, and there's obviously no guarantee yeah. of it, my hope is this mass migration that's happened that's sort of hollowed out the innovation economy in many parts of the the country uh, and and really helped a few places on the on the coast. We'll, we'll see a, a readjustment 
a new kind of migration where people start going to back in the middle of the country and back to some of these you know, cities that are a little bit smaller, a little bit more livable, a little bit you know, lower cost of living. And if that happens, if the talent is there, the capital will, will follow. That's interesting. By the way, I know even a VC firm, just because I know Park City, Utah, well, there's a VC firm in Park City, Utah. It's like, it's really interesting. We hire people. If you love to do finance and venture and also appreciate great outdoors and great skiing, you should work, come work with us. And if you don't like any of that, don't. And he's like, the, the number of people we get applying, because they want, they choose that. They're like, I want to be there. Oh my God, I can. Now that's because the company happens to be there and it's a, an interesting town, but just. But also there's some, there's, there is some, there's some history to this because sure. even 50 years ago, uh, 75 years ago, if you wanted to be in the movie business, you had to be in Hollywood. Or that's New York, right, or Hollywood. Was. Yeah. Well, yeah. today, a lot of people still choose to be in Hollywood, but many right. people are making movies, music, other things all across the country, indeed all across the world. Similarly, 50 sure. years ago, if you wanted to be in the financial services business, the sense was you had to be in New York. You had to be on Wall Street. Some people choose to be in New York and are on Wall Street far more, whether it be private equity or hedge funds or, or other kinds of uh, vehicles, are deciding to, to locate in, in other places. So I think the same dynamic will happen in the in the tech sector and the startup sector over the next uh, 10, 20 years. Okay, cool. Three more questions, then we're done. Um, next question is from Zeke Hughes. Thanks, Zeke, for asking. It's a little bit long, but I'll read it. Especially if distributed work is here to stay, what's software's role in imbuing workflow and productivity tools with human social-centered design? Should developers design for social good or stick to what they're good at, customer acquisition and engagement? I don't know if that made sense, but I well, I think I think I, I think I understand the question. And yeah. the answer the answer is again, you know, varied. I think clearly, as we're seeing in this work from home environment, whether it be Zoom or Slack, or a lot of things have accelerated in terms of adoption because people are understanding the importance of it. At the same time, there are a lot of focus now on trying to develop the Zoom for particular sectors. Maybe uh, a broad platform like that isn't perfect for every possible. Uh, interaction. Maybe classrooms should be different than business uh, meetings. And so there's going to be some innovation there and a continuing kind of reassessing of what is the best way to create the best possible kind of work environment, which will include these hybrids. You know, some people will choose to you know, go back to the office and work in the office, maybe exclusively or at least mostly. Mm -hmm. Some may choose to be more in a, in a remote work from home environment. One of the challenges is how do you bridge those worlds and make sure the people who aren't aren't there in the office, aren't feeling kind of left out. So there's all kinds right. of opportunities for, for entrepreneurs to create the right kind of technologies, software, other kinds of things that, that are supportive of this new work environment. Okay, uh, last two questions. Next question, thank you, is from John Houghton. John asks, what was one of the most unexpected, fun and fulfilling stories from the Rise of the Rest tour? Well, we, we've now, as I said, been to 45 cities, so it's, it's sort of, Kind of like asking what's your favorite child. There's we, 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 <laughs> been great things. There's great things that've been happening in each of the uh, the cities. For example, our last uh, tour, we were in Florida. Went to the Space Coast, where obviously the you know half a century ago, Apollo 11, all this activity, the space race was was launched. We saw some really interesting things there around mm -hmm. uh, space technologies that were not just from the large companies that historically were dominating, but from the Small companies. When we were in Chattanooga, there was a company we saw called Freight Waves that was doing some interesting things around the trucking mm -hmm. industry. And actually, I didn't know this, but Chattanooga has the best high-speed uh, you know, access in the country because the mayor decided to fight the mm -hmm. telephone company and, and build it for the, uh, the, the different cities. So each of these cities have had great stories where people are doing innovative things to try to help the startup community, help the the cities come together to back this next wave of, of, of innovation. One of the reasons we love doing it uh, is it connects us to a lot of people and, and builds extends our our network, including of, of regional venture funds we can we can co-invest in. But also, mm -hmm. we just love meeting the entrepreneurs, visiting these cities, understanding the unique dynamics of these cities, how they help build America. You know, 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. Now we're the leader of the pack because of the work of of entrepreneurs and that work in the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or more recently the technology revolution happened all over the country. And each of these cities essentially has a backstory uh, in terms of the role they played in building the, the, the country. So it's great to hit the road and, and understand those stories and meet those people. 
That's cool. I, I thought it was going to be, I think I was talking to Tracy on your team a week or two ago, and I'd said to you, by the way, in last year's tour, which I remember, how did you ever get the bus to Puerto Rico? I thought that was going to be your fun. Oh, we figured out how to get the bus to Puerto Rico. Well, get a different you know, bus and wrap it. My friend, Jose Andres, the chef who's uh, led now World Central Kitchen, a lot of relief yeah, yeah. efforts, in addition to running a lot of restaurants, is it was part of the whole Puerto Rico relief effort. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he was the one who, who uh, got us to the, instead of driving the bus to Puerto Rico, which you mentioned is not possible, we, we Little challenging. created a new bus there. Uh, right. but it was a great day and, and seeing how they were shifting from relief to recovery, which I think will be the theme coming up of COVID. How sure. do we deal, move from right. that you know kind of relief, get through it mode to more of a recovery rebuilding uh, mode? And it was, it was a great day. Great. Okay, last question is from Santush uh, Sarma. I hope I pronounced that correctly. How's the road to recovery for the advertise? How's the road to recovery for the advertising sector, specifically speaking to the DOOH space, which is digital out of home advertising? Any thoughts on that? Uh, well, the different sectors are going to recover in different kind of ways. There clearly has been. I haven't seen the latest data from uh, Facebook or, or Google, but clearly from what we're hearing anecdotally from a lot of companies we back, there's been a pullback in and advertising spend that actually has created opportunity for some of the companies we've backed. They've actually accelerated their marketing because mm -hmm. uh, the acquisition awesome. cost has, right. has decreased. So now's mm -hmm. maybe the best possible time to, to gain market share and, 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 and have more marketing efficiency. So in general, people are pulling back because of people are not as, as quite as active in terms of obviously traveling or, or being out and, and even in buying things other than e-commerce, but there's some sectors that are really using this again as an opportunity. Again, there are terrible problems we're dealing with, and it's going right. to take a while to, to, to get out of this you know, economically and certainly from a health crisis standpoint. Uh, but there are also opportunities. I think the entrepreneurs that we're particularly uh, you know, pleased to be working with are, are the ones who manage the challenges they're dealing with and take them very seriously, including the safety of their employees and customers and, and so forth, but also are focusing on, on the new possibilities and how do you Kind of build on this uh, and and be well positioned, better positioned coming out of this than you were going into this. Right, exactly. Great, terrific. I don't want to take too much more of your time. We've been on for an hour. This has been terrific, Steve. Thank you so very much for your time. It was great to see you. I'm glad all is well. Stay well, and thanks for being on Dream It Live. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you and everybody out there. Thanks for listening, and you also stay well. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye.